Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. So right now, volatility has returned to markets. Our investors are very interested in what's going on in Australia and particularly in the US. And the big driver for what's happening is the likelihood of higher inflation being the catalyst for what we call a normalisation in interest rates. It's been a long time coming You feel like everyone should have seen this coming at some point, but there's still plenty of debate about what normalisation looks like, how long it will take, whether it should happen at all. To help make sense of all of this, because we're discussing it all the time on NABTRADE, I'm joined by Ivan Cahoon, Global Head of Research for NAB Markets. Ivan, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Gemma. It's great to be here. So Ivan, you've been kind enough to join us many times talking about what's happening in the economy. So you are a, an economic guy, not a, not a stock markets guy, which I know you'll remind us of regularly. But the value of what you can bring to this conversation is explaining to us first principles about what is quite extraordinary. Um, I'm going to say monetary policy. It's going to drive everybody mad because it's Uh, an expression that if you didn't study economics probably means nothing. Can you explain where we find ourselves now with interest rates, with inflation, and put it in a bit of a historical context for our listeners? Well, I'll certainly try. Um, So I think, you know, if you go back to before the pandemic, what we had was an environment really that started off in the global financial crisis where interest rates in many countries um, became very low, some actually went negative. And in countries, a number of countries, but not all countries, um, central banks uh, engaged in what's called quantitative easing. So they buy government bonds to try and hold interest rates even lower when the official cash rate is at zero or at the lower bound. So that was before uh, we had the pandemic. Uh, But, you know, in some countries like the US, rates had gone back up a bit. Uh, But the pandemic was something, again, a bit different. So what we saw there was that pretty much everywhere in the developed world, interest rates got to zero or very close to it, or if they were already a little bit negative, they, they stayed a little bit negative. And also governments really spent a huge amount of money supporting businesses, supporting the economy. And central banks not only cut interest rates to zero, but they engaged in a lot of uh, bond purchases um, to effectively help keep interest rates low. And in Australia, we did those um, conventional or those unconventional monetary policies for the first time. So that that's what happened. But what we uh, where we are now, um, and I, I guess in terms of the response in the p- pandemic, I don't think we've seen anything like that. It, it was much bigger than the global financial crisis with rates going to zero just about everywhere and governments spending a huge, huge amounts of money. Um, so yeah, historical context, a huge, huge response. And so the big debate at the moment, though, is are a lot of those um, settings still justified uh, because obviously 
the economies have turned out to be quite different to, I think, the, the policy settings that have been set in, in place, though there is some circularity there whereby the economies may not have turned out exactly as they've turned out if we didn't have all that policy support. So that's a really nice summary, and I do tend to go back to the GFC as well. It's a, there will be a lot of listeners who were either not investing, not interested, not uh, paying close attention to what happened during the global financial crisis. I think for anyone who was in or interested in markets at the time, it's such a pivotal moment. But can you give us an idea? How many times in history have interest rates been at or close to zero? And also, what's the purpose of it? Like, we talk about stimulus. What are they trying to do? Okay, so close to zero, I think really only in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, you'd have to go back to, you know, they've been very low before, um, but really only in some countries after the global financial crisis were they zero. And, of course, in some countries they went uh, negative and and some interest rates still are negative, which I think uh, I don't really think that's a good idea, but some central banks have, have done that. What are they trying to do? Whenever, you know, a central bank cuts interest rates, it is trying to um, encourage people to borrow um, and to, you know, invest and to, um, you know, consume earlier. So it's trying to bring forward some spending. And it's also often trying to help out debtors, um, the people who have debt, uh, to manage their cash flows. Um, so each of them is trying to, each that action is trying to support the economy. Now, the other thing that, of course, happened was governments provided a lot of support, and they can do that uh, by cutting taxes or giving money away, um, you know, either through direct credits. Remember, in the global financial crisis, um, households got a $1,000 check, and they started spending that pretty much straight away. This time around, um, they doubled unemployment benefits for a while and they provided um, JobKeeper, which was a big support to businesses um, and to employees because instead of losing their jobs, businesses kept them on. So both of those were very, very important um, developments. You made a comment earlier that those stimulatory measures have actually been very effective. So the economy is looking, frankly, quite a bit brighter than where many people would have anticipated. And you will be able to talk to this far better than I. There is obviously always going to be some parts of the economy that are doing really strongly and others that are still struggling. I know there are many people who uh, haven't come through this period with flying colours or much stronger businesses and then others where things are going extremely well. The big concern at the moment is now inflation. So can you tell us about what that is? Inflation, even in my adult lifetime, has not really been a thing. I learned about it a lot at university and at school uh, when you're studying economics, the big concern about inflation, but it just doesn't appear to have been a massive issue at any point. And yet now it's in all the business headlines. Can you talk about that for us? Sure. And I I think you have to go back a little bit and say, what have the reserve banks or central banks around the world, what have they done? And it's really been probably a 30-year journey 
across time, maybe even 40, to get to a position of low inflation in the world um, in or lots of parts of the world. Um, Australia in the 1980s had quite high inflation. Uh, it wasn't until the recession of the early 1990s that um, we managed to get inflation down. The central bank took up inflation targeting and really has kept inflation between 2 and 3% for most of the time since uh, that period. Now, central banks believe, and certainly the Reserve Bank of Australia believes, that high inflation is not a good thing, and also that uh, negative inflation or deflation is not a good thing, because that um, creates, if prices are falling, uh, then there's an incentive for people to stop consuming and wait for the price to fall, uh, and that can um, set off a nasty dynamic uh, for economies. So the best uh, outcome is that inflation is low, uh, and in Australia that's 2 to 3%, uh, and broadly stable. Um, so low inflation, but you know neither high nor falling. Um, so what's happened at the moment and what's I think uh, surprised um, central banks a lot. And I think central banks have really been very, very surprised in this cycle because what we saw initially was some very, very dramatic falls in activity. And you'll remember in Australia, quarter two GDP was minus 7%. Now, a recession is normally like a minus one or minus one and a half percent. GDP. So minus seven in one quarter is just something no one had seen before. But it didn't, it wasn't the normal sort of business cycle. As you remember, a lot of activity just stopped because people were locked down. They're in their homes. So they're not flying around. They're not going out to restaurants. Um, it was hard to go out to shops. Um, so it wasn't actually that the business cycle turned down. It was just um, activity stopped. And then, of course, in Australia, when we uh, controlled the virus so well in the initial stages um, of the pandemic, we reopened and activity levels went straight back to where they were for most um, sectors. For some, as you said, it, it, they went a lot higher. And for others, they remained very, very weak. So, you know, some of the good examples of, you know, weakness are international travel, which we've been doing very little of for, for two years. And some of the strengths are in um, goods demand, um, things that, uh, you know, demand lifted because people weren't spending as much on services. So I think that's where a lot of the inflation we're seeing at the moment, there's, there's a number of sources and they all come back to this, um, you know, the particular shock we're getting from COVID. So firstly, you can say that there's been a lot of money given to households and to businesses uh, in this downturn or in this event, let's call it an event, shock. Um, we've seen the labour market get very tight, not expected at all um, by central banks. Um, so we're actually getting some wage rises coming through. We've seen huge switches in spending from services to goods, as I was just talking about. And we've seen some supply chain disruptions. Um, 
Now, part of that is because labour's uh, been scarce and people haven't been able to, you know, keep up with, um, you know, keep their factories running. But I think a bigger part is that the demand for goods has gone up very dramatically as a switch from services. And so what you've got is, to an extent, 7 billion people around the world are consuming more goods and less services. And the world's um, supply chains and freight uh, networks are not set up for that massive, that bigger shift to goods demand away from services by broadly by everyone in the whole world over a very short period of time. That has also meant that people don't have to discount um, their goods as much as was occurring uh, before uh, COVID came along. So I think that's the, that's the, the structure of why inflation's higher. The debate in economists, uh, amongst economists and central banks, is to what extent is that temporary or transitory so it happens for a while because of COVID and because of these um, unusual factors, but it's not long-lasting, so you don't really have to worry about it in the medium term. But the other part of that debate is, okay, let's say, a good example, um, Gemma, is used car prices. They've been much, much higher and much, much higher in the US, um, which is much higher inflation prints than Australia at the moment. Now, should the price of a used car be permanently higher and the rate at which used car prices increase, which is inflation is the rate of change of prices, should that be permanently higher forever because we've had COVID? And we think the answer is no, uh, that once the um, supply of um, new cars catches back up to demand uh, that we will see the price of used cars correct back down. And then a lot of people have bought new cars or have ordered new cars because it take, it's taking quite a while to get them at the moment with um, some chip shortages. So um, that there'll be some pull forward of demand um, so that people... You know, demand for new cars in one or two years may not be as strong as it's been over this unusual period. So I think there's a lot of reasons to think in the goods market that once people feel confident to travel and to go to restaurants, um, that spending on services will pick back up and that the real tightness and problems in goods markets will, will ease back. But the uncertainty is very much will the labour market stay very tight? Because they're, they're pretty tight around the world. And if, if labour markets stay tight, then wages should pick back up. That's a good thing for workers. It's not as good for businesses. But if, if wages are picking up, then you get more cost push inflation. So the, the cost of um, doing business goes up. And that's, uh, that's what markets, I think, are puzzling about at the moment. Oh, there's so much in there and it's super interesting. I think we're all aware of all of these things at different levels. Uh, the chip shortage is one I find really interesting uh, and this is a very abridged version of what I understand to have happened, but the chip manufacturers of whom there are very few and there's 
you know, it's obviously a very sophisticated process and the supply chain to produce a chip is quite tight. Uh, pulled back on their production at the beginning of COVID, anticipating a very dramatic fall in demand. And then the demand rose dramatically very quickly, much earlier than anticipated, but there's an eight-month lead time to make a chip. And suddenly you want to ramp back up and have everything happening immediately, but your supply chain has been disrupted quite dramatically by the fact that people need to isolate and you've got social distancing in your workshops and in your factories and so on. And so this eight-month lag or lead time to ramp up production is really significant and it seems to be affecting many things other than chips, but because chips are in so many things, including cars, it, uh, it's created all of this complexity, which those of us who don't work in such sectors find quite fascinating from a distance. So generally... Going back to my first year economics, the response to higher inflation, and you made a comment about wages, which is really interesting, and I'm sure a lot of people want to pay very close attention to your thoughts on that. The response to higher inflation from central banks is to increase interest rates. And the analogy is always take away the punch bowl before the party gets too crazy. This is what equity markets, which I'm closest to, seem to be getting pretty stressed about. Can you, first of all, give us your views on, you know, how soon, how high, which countries, that kind of stuff in terms of where interest rates are likely to go? And then secondly, why it has such significant implications for equity markets, why they're getting so nervous? Yeah. So I think as you described it, um, and as we I talked about a bit earlier, in when you get a, a negative shock to an economy, central banks tend to cut interest rates. Um, when that shock passes, they tend to put interest rates back to a, a more normal um, setting. Um, so when you're at zero, interest rates are pretty much as low as they can go in Australia. And the, the sort of things that guide central banks about whether interest rates should stay at you know whatever whatever low settings they've got, as you said, are inflation. In Australia, our central bank tries to keep inflation between 2 and 3% on average. And then the other things are, you know, the tightness of the labour market, how low unemployment is. And in Australia, the unemployment rate has got down to 4.2%. And that's really as low as it, it's been just before the global financial crisis, we were around 4%. Uh, I think Perth and Western Australia was 2.5% because um, they had the, you know a huge mining boom. Uh, but it's pretty rare to see unemployment close to 4 in Australia or even lower than that. And our central bank has been trying, It's it's got a number of things it tries to achieve. It tries to in, uh, achieve full employment, which is somewhere close to four, I think you'd say, or a little bit below would be most people that want a job have a job. And it also tries to keep inflation relatively low. So both of those indicators are saying, look, the economy or the targets are very close to being met and therefore it doesn't make as much sense to have interest rates at these very, very low levels. Now, we've heard a lot from the Reserve Bank Governor this week, uh, or from the Reserve Bank, we'll get their latest statement of monetary policy um, tomorrow. Uh, but what is clear is that the Governor 
the bank believes that they can get unemployment even lower so they can get to full employment and maybe that's three and three quarter percent and they're not as worried in Australia and they're not too worried about inflation getting out of control here and he would actually like to see workers get a bigger wage rise or some faster increases in their wages because they haven't been growing very quickly at all in the last six or seven years. Um, so he's going to keep interest rates uh, relatively low for some, some time to come. Uh, now, he's changed his mind quite a lot from late last year where he was very clearly saying he didn't think interest rates would go up before 2024 but it's plausible they might go up in 2023, but it's most unlikely they'll go up in 2022. And about three months later or two or three months later, he's saying, look, we're making much better progress on reducing unemployment and getting inflation back into the target. So it's likely that interest rates will go up earlier and it's plausible they could go up later in 2022. So that's a, a very big change. The other central banks around the world are a bit more advanced in their thinking on this. Some central banks have already put up interest rates. So the New Zealand Central Bank has put up interest rates. The Bank of England has put up interest rates and they have another meeting tonight and probably will put up interest rates again. And the, the, the probably the biggest and most influential central bank for the whole world and for equity markets is the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, and they're widely expected to raise interest rates at their March meeting. Um, so everywhere around the world you can see that central banks are beginning to decide that um, the inflation pressures and cost pressures that are around need a signalling that rates don't need to be as low as they are and the tightness in the labour market is giving them the same signal that it's time to take away the punch bowl to a certain extent. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about what the trajectory looks like, <laughs> you know, when it's coming, how soon it's coming, how high we're going to go and so on. Do you guys have a view on what normal looks like in Australia? For many of uh, our investors and listeners and so on, I, I remember having a conversation with someone I'm really close to who was planning a home loan in say 2010, let's say, and I was saying, look, you've got to assume that rates will increase three or 4% from where they are now because they're really low and you need to be able to service that mortgage. And obviously I prepared for a scenario that never happened, certainly not for like 11 years. You know, they've just had lower and lower rates through that period, but it will change eventually. So oh, maybe I'm wrong about that too. At what point do you anticipate normal and what do you think normal does look like after 30 years of lower and lower rates? Yeah, so those are both really good and really big questions. Um, so part of it has, as you've said, there's been this trend to lower and lower interest rates. Now, our central bank has said they're not putting interest rates below zero. Now, they may change their mind if the whole world was in recession and the US took interest rates below zero, but thankfully... That's not a 
consideration we have to think about in the near term. But we do have to think about, okay, what is, people talk about a neutral interest rate. So if the economy was at full employment and inflation was at target and growth was um, going along nicely at trend, what interest rate would keep all of that in equilibrium? And in Australia, and this is a theoretical concept and it, it can't be proven, um, you can sort of observe what happens as you move interest rates around to all of those variables. But people will tend to think that the a neutral official cash rate in Australia is probably somewhere between one and three quarter percent and, and maybe two and three quarters percent. So that's quite a wide range. Um, now that's the theoretical way you can calculate it. And then you can come back and say, well, let's think about if cash rates did go up to, let's choose 2% as a, as a figure, what would that do for the cost of your mortgage, uh, for example? And then you can look at how much that takes out of the household budget and that will potentially have a, uh, an impact on consumer spending, um, slow the economy as well. So that's, that's one aspect. But I think what might be a little bit different um, is the environment we're talking about is if what if wages are increasing and the labour market remains very tight? Uh, then you can have interest rates going up and if people are getting stronger wage rises and they remain very confident in their employment, then perhaps those interest rate rises aren't, aren't quite as effective as before. Now, for some people that have very large mortgages, they, they will be very effective. So, so it's, a, it's a difficult um, concept to be precise about, but what I, I would assess is that if interest rates in Australia were 50 or 100 basis or you know half a percent or one percent higher in the mortgage, I don't think that would cause the economy to fall over. I think uh, people have, uh, we've seen interest rates um, reduced from those sorts of levels over the last three or four years, um, going back to that level with um, very low unemployment um, would, I, I don't think it would break the bank. Hopefully not our bank anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, um, it's not going to break the consumer, I think. They, they can handle rates being somewhat high. Oh, that's a really interesting point because there's certainly a lot of speculation about what the implications would be for the housing market and the wealth effects where if your house price keeps going up, you feel really wealthy and so you spend more. The one thing we tend to leave out of these conversations, I think, because of the demographic of people having these conversations, we worry about mortgages, but there's a very large proportion of the population who are retired or close to retirement who are worried about living off their savings. And for those guys, higher interest rates are great right? Because it's very difficult to get a yield on your savings when interest rates are close to zero. Do you see that as being beneficial with an ageing population? Yeah, well, with any um, changes in interest rates or changes in asset prices, there's, there's winners and, you know, relative losers and, and people shift 
their asset allocations around. And so one of the discussion points, like you cut interest rates and that has a cost, as you said, on on people who uh, live off interest rate income. Um, it also has encouraged people to borrow for housing. Uh, potentially it's encouraged people to invest more into the share market to try and get dividends um, as a as a source of income. So there's a lot of um, factors or things that go on, movements that go on when interest rates change in both directions. So as you've said, um, if interest rates were to go back up to one or one and a half percent, then people will likely, I think, start going back into term deposits. Um, if um, we've seen this in the share market, this isn't a prediction, this is just observation about what's already happened as financial markets have expected interest rates to go up. Um, we've seen some of those um, growth stocks you know, correcting and some of the value stocks um, coming back more into favour just because um, when rates are, are very, very low, you're discounting future cash flows and future dividends at very low rates of, you know, very low discount rates. So when markets begin to think that discount, that interest rates will go higher, then people start to put in other figures into their calculations. And as you said, some people will say, okay, well, I've done well in this particular share or out of the share market over the last two years. So maybe I'll, I'll put some money back into a term deposit. So you get all those sorts of adjustments occurring uh, naturally when interest rates change. I was going to ask you about that and you've answered my question already. I've got one that may not be on the minds of many investors, but it's worth asking because this period of central banks uh, and their asset purchases is so abnormal. I'm not aware of it in history at any point in time. Uh, you will have a better understanding than I do. But this idea that central banks go out and buy bonds, and there's even uh, Bank of Japan, I believe, buying ETFs, so buying assets uh, in order to provide further stimulus because they cannot go any lower with their interest rate is just fascinating for nerds. It's fascinating for nerds. Um, but there's obviously now a bit of a line in the sand with asset purchases ending. Do you think at some point that needs to unwind? Uh, well, look, there's already talk about it actually unwinding among some central banks. So the Fed has started talking about reversing some of its um, quantitative easing and its asset purchases. Um, and they're signalling that, that you know, they'll, they'll, they're thinking about it at the moment. They'll think about it for a few more meetings. And um, our expectation is that they'll probably start to reduce their balance sheet um, from the second half of this year. Um, so I think that's happening. I think the RBNZ's uh, thinking about that as well, and um, the Bank of England. So, so yes is the answer. They are thinking about it. And should it happen? Well, I think yes is also the answer because 
um, what we found in this, given interest rates are so low, if there's shocks or recessions, you have to use these unconventional policy tools. Now, um, to the extent that banks have lots and lots of government bonds at the moment, and things improve, then it makes sense to reduce the size of your balance sheet um, gradually and so that you don't really uh, cause markets to um, panic. Or, um, But the more you um, reduce it now, then that gives you the ability when the next shock comes along to actually um, increase your balance sheet again. Um, so I think it's it's good sense, just as probably people are more familiar um, with the Australian governments, both Labor and, and Coalition have always looked to get the budget back into balance or into surplus uh, when times are good so that when times are bad, they can spend money. Um, that's the analogy. It's, it's the same thing. You begin, you try and run down your balance sheet, the central bank balance sheet. So next time there's a shock, um, you can, you know, look to run it back up and, and give that support to, uh, to the economy that way. That's a really great answer. And I think it will make a lot of sense for people who are wondering what the hell an asset purchased by a central bank is sometimes. Um, one final question, probably the one that's on everybody's mind so the last time that a central bank, well, no, this is not correct actually, but the taper tantrum occurred and it was called the taper tantrum when markets fell over 10% because investors, clearly traders, were so unhappy with the, uh, the Federal Reserve in the US talking about tapering their stimulus measures. What are your thoughts on how this is going to play out for investors in the long run? Do you think everyone's going to spit the dummy or do you think this has been flagged for so long, the economy is performing really strongly at a global level or far more strongly than anyone expected and people will respond calmly? Well, look, I think the taper tantrum that occurred was when people people didn't had never seen uh, tapering or reverse reversal of of quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, and didn't even think. Well, sorry, and this was even before quantitative tightening. It was just a, a slowdown in the rate of quantitative easing, um, and people panicked about that. And I think now people have you know there's there's a lot more maturity in markets. They've seen the Federal Reserve taper its bond purchases once before and stop bond purchases and the world hasn't ended. And I think they've gone back to, you know, they've seen interest rates go up. And I still come back to, I think, that the official interest rate is the main, you know, it's still the main policy tool uh, in the US and Australia and New Zealand and the UK. Uh, and so what that what happens to official interest rates is, I think, going to be more important for markets uh, than you know the quantitative tightening because I expect central banks to to manage that sensibly and you know not shock markets, etc. So the, the main story I think would be if inflation 
ends up being much higher than expected and more persistent and wages pick up more than expected. Central banks, which have interest rates still very close to zero or at zero in most cases, they can't stay with those rates at zero. They need to get those rates back towards neutral, which, as we discussed in Australia, may be somewhere around 2%. And if inflation starts exceeding the target persistently, let's say inflation in Australia prints 4%, that's not a forecast, it's just saying 4% for two years in a row and wages start picking up, then central banks to control inflation and they target inflation, remember, so they will act to bring that back into, um, you know, to the lower to try and get it back to two to three, they will have to take interest rates higher than neutral because you have to get them above neutral to actually reduce inflation. So that's the scenario I think that would be most upsetting to markets, to interest rate markets and bond markets, because you would be talking about central banks having to move rates up a lot more than is currently priced into markets. Now, the good news is quite a lot is priced in already. So markets are where they are uh, with expectations that interest rates will go up towards, you know, one and three quarter percent in Australia. Um, so if you're trying to borrow a three-year fixed home loan, that those rates are already higher because markets have adjusted, whereas they were below 2% a year ago. Um, so, so I think it, it really will be how do wages go? Does inflation stay permanently higher? Uh, and if that was the case, then markets will get worried that interest rates have to go uh, a lot, you know, when I say a lot higher, but higher than they're, they're currently expecting, and that would be your, your main challenge. That's such a helpful response. Uh, for many of our investors, they are aware of your team and they listen to the Morning Call podcast. So you guys do an amazing podcast that has ex- an extraordinary following, frankly, uh, and is accessible daily on NabTrade. And you talk about the data and what is happening uh, in oh, with central banks, with interest rates, with inflation, with all of the speeches happening around the world. And I think so much of that will make far more sense to people after this conversation. A little bit more historical context can really help. How do people find out about more of the data and analysis and the reports that you guys produce? Because you do some amazing long-form stuff as well. Uh, yes, so we have a, a QR code you could scan and sign up. There are uh, a number of publications, including the NAB Business Survey, the Australian Markets Weekly, the podcast available on NAB's uh, website, nab.com.au. Uh, I think it's under something called Business uh, BRI, Business Research Insights, and they could probably uh, contact you, Gemma. And- <laughs> Uh, organise for them to uh, to get a copy of the QR code um, and sign themselves up. We might put the QR code, I think, in the blurb 
uh, for this podcast and make it really easy for people. We'll see how we go. I apologise if we don't make it work. Mm. Ivan from NAB Markets, thank you so much for joining us today. That was incredibly helpful. Okay, thanks for having me along. And um, I hope, uh, you know, I would recommend the NAB Business Survey to people, um, the podcast, as Gemma said, and uh, we also do the Australian Markets Weekly. Um, we have forecasts, we have FX strategists, um, property research. So there's a host, there's, there's too much for everyone to read, um, but if you need to look for some research, um, then we're, we're here to help. It is amazing the quality and quantity of research available and the joy of working in a bank is the amount of data we have access to and the analysis you guys do of that data to help people understand how businesses are faring, how consumers are faring, how the economy is faring is just incredibly valuable. Right. Okay. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks, Ivan. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We've received some fantastic feedback and we love getting your questions. So please email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.